Welcome to another episode of Nashville Anthems, dissecting 80s and 90s country music. I'm your host, Milton McManerberry, and I want to give a no-hat hat tip to Robin and Wilford Shook for contributing the theme music for today's episode. Because today we are sinking into another song by Georgia's own famously hat-free 90s hitmaker, Travis Tritt. If you're new to this podcast, let me explain that what we're trying to do here is to develop an understanding of what makes 80s and 90s country music particularly work. What's going on here exactly? There is some secret sauce, and I want to figure out the recipe. And we're attacking that project through close examination of the songs played on satellite radios, 80s and 90s country station, one at a time. And today's subject is Lord Have Mercy on the Working Man. It won't kill you, and we'd never bill you. So if you haven't already, I hope you'll pause this podcast and give Lord Have Mercy on the Working Man a close listen or two. And now let's get into it. First off, we always want to give credit where credit is due. Courtesy of Billboard and Wikipedia, Lord Have Mercy on the Working Man was released in 1992 on Travis Tritt's third album, T-R-O-U-B-L-E. It was the first single from that album, and I somehow particularly remember when it came out. And that may be because it was a political song that, I'm sure not coincidentally, came out right before a presidential election in August of 1992. That seems so quaint to point out is noteworthy now, right? As with our previous Travis Tritt selection, I'm going to be somebody, Tritt did not participate in the writing of this song. That is atypical for Travis Tritt, but just how the chips happen to fall for us on this project. The man who did write the song goes by the single name Costas. Yes, single name like Beck and like Cher. Costas was a well-known country songwriter of this era, and I invite you to look him up to see other songs of his that you might know and love. He wrote a lot for our first subject on this podcast, Patty Loveless, including a favorite of mine, a song called Timber, I'm Falling in Love. Do you remember that one? That is a great country song, and I hope we get to it on this podcast. Anyway, Lord Have Mercy on the Working Man peaked at number five the week of said presidential election. It was held back by... Shake the Sugar Tree, I love that song, by Pam Tillis. Watch Me by Loretta Lynn, Lori Morgan. One of our f- previous selections, John Anderson's Seminole Wind. And at number one was Winona Judd, No One Else on Earth. By the way, R.I.P. Naomi Judd. As I'm recording this, we've just tragically lost her this past week. Sad but true. Well, finally, Lord Have Mercy on the Working Man was produced by Greg Brown. All right, so let's get into the song itself and talk about some key aspects of the song that seem, at least to me, to comprise its DNA. First off, I think this song could be considered a novelty song. I say that because we start off with this old-time barroom piano solo intro. And that piano style sticks around for the whole song, actually. The rest of the instrumentation fills it out to something more traditional and more instrument-heavy. As we mentioned last time, it seems to be an emerging pattern, at least in 90s country. And along with those more traditional instruments, the song keeps lots of just kind of oddball sound effects in there, like whistles and various percussion instruments that I can't precisely identify. Which those along with that barroom piano style and a lot of acoustic guitar licks that are pretty relentless throughout the song give an old-fashioned honky-tonk type feel to the song with a sense of corny humor. 
I compare this style to an artist who only had a little overlap with our focus era here, Brad Paisley. That lighthearted, even corny part of the country tradition is something Paisley drew on a lot. And it's easy to hear in your own mind how this song would work in his voice and style. The song also is in heavy swing. I believe this is the first song that we've had on this podcast that was in swing. Swing just means that the beats are unevenly subdivided. So instead of one and two and three and four, it's more like one and two and three and four. Those upbeats are delayed. Swing pops up a lot in like older 20th century music. Almost every big band song is in swing, for example. And fast swing, I think it's fair to say, is something that has a rich history in country music, especially with the rockabilly style that we haven't gotten to yet. Uh, Travis Tritt's frequent collaborator, Marty Stewart, being an 80s, 90s proponent of that style. But the slower swing of Lord Have Mercy on the Working Man, I don't think is very common in country music. I can think of one other example offhand, and it's honestly kind of flirting with being a novelty song itself, and that's Garth Brooks's Two of a Kind working on a full house. Maybe there are a lot more, and I'm off base on this, but I cannot think of them right now. Let's keep an ear out as we continue through this project. But all that adds up to what I'm calling a novelty song, something closer to Ray Stevens than, say, the rest of Travis Tritt's corpus. And we'll talk in a minute about why that seems to be important to this song as far as making that song work. But the second key feature I want to get to in this song, and I, you know, it kind of is related to both of the other two that I'm going to talk about, the novelty song and the next one I'm going to get to. Uh, but I couldn't figure out which one to place it in, so let's just set it apart as its own thing. And that's the fact that this is a party bar type song, a la 80s country song, Friends in Low Places, or a later example would be Toby Keith, I Love This Bar. You know what I'm talking about? It sounds like the song is sung uh, at like a rowdy bar, or at least at a rowdy party, among people who have maybe had a few and are singing along kind of carefree, enjoying themselves together. It's it has a feel of being in a crowd. You hear that especially on these last few courses when this it's like a celebrity choir joins. It almost feels like We Are the World, but let's call it We Are the World by Drunk People in a Nashville Bar. It's hard to distinguish the individual voices in this choir, but one stands out especially to me, and he even has a little spoken word part, and that's the legendary George Jones. And George Jones's presence in this song gives it, and it's, to me it's not quite authenticity, but believability as a bona fide country anthem. And it may need that. Th- this song really is a novelty, and it would be easy to write it off as a joke. But you know, while the humor and lightheartedness is there in this song, the song means for you to take its message seriously. So I find this interesting. In my mind, it's a hallmark of classic country that it seems we're starting to see. We saw something similar in another three-chord song in A major, God Bless Texas. There is something tongue-in-cheek about this song, or at least a wink. Maybe it's it's not quite irony. I think the song does mean what it says, but there's a smile or something in the song's tone, like you're in on the joke. It's less a solo lament and more commiseration with peers in the same boat. It's kind of fun for the singer to make this complaint, it seems, because he's making it among sympathetic friends. And that's why I think that the party bar feel of the song is important to making the song work. 
Because that's also an important, as I said, sub-element of the last key feature I want to get to. And I'm going to call this class pandering. This song is another unabashed celebration of its subject matter. We see that almost every time we talk about a song on Nashville anthems. This time, that subject matter is blue-collar, working-class Americans. So, you know, it's interesting. I say blue-collar. And while there's plenty in the video, I would argue there is nothing in the song itself that would limit the working man referenced in the song to blue-collar working people, although apparently it is limited to men and not women, for what that's worth. Uh, it's certainly explicit that the working man is poor in the song, and also thin in that last chorus. I don't quite get that one. But I think you're allowed to be in real life white-collar and poor, and certainly white-collar and hardworking. But for that matter, I think you're allowed to be a working man without being poor. But my real beef here is that the song is oversimplifying a complex class issue, right? But it's a song, Melton, not a dissertation. So let's take it on its own terms. But still, I'm going to call this song pandering. I think there's an honest and genuine complaint in here about a very real problem. But as we've seen again and again on this project, there's not room in this song to question, nuance, or debate the song's point. And that's why I'd say it's pandering a bit and maybe sacrifices some authenticity in doing so. Because while this podcast is about why 80s and 90s country music works, I just think there's something about this song that maybe doesn't quite work. Honestly, probably the reason the song can pull off what it does at all, to the extent that it pulls it off, goes back to what I mentioned earlier, that the song really is a novelty song. It's a song that is not serious about a subject matter that is. You know, Tritt's vocals help a lot here, too. It can really sing, folks. I tell you, this project has made me more of a Travis Tritt fan. I appreciate the energy his music always has, that southern rock country blend they talks about, especially in his vocal performances, those soulful vocals he gives. And, you know, not that I wasn't a fan of Tripp before, because I was, but my appreciation for him has grown. Tritt always sounds like he's enjoying himself when he sings. And even a song with really kind of a depressing message like this, it seems he's enjoying it. Like it really is. And, you know, as far as class pandering, at least we can say it's not partisan, which feels weird for the time in which I'm recording this. Although, you know, honestly, the music video kind of is partisan. It is a 1992 political flashback that may make you double take if you watch it with modern eyes. Fair warning. Multiple appearances of 1992 Donald Trump, of all people, in the music video are gold. How times have changed. Or have they? You know, in our previous Travis Tritt episode, I'm going to be somebody. We talked about how one of the ways the song was idealistic about its hardworking values was that it failed to narrate the actual hard work. Bobby, not Johnny Melton, Bobby, placed his stake in the ground on the poor side of town and determined to persevere against the naysayers. And the next thing you knew, he was a bona fide country celebrity. The next thing you knew, he was Travis Tritt in 1992. But what about those 10 years of hard work it took him to get to the top? Well, maybe we have our answer in Lord Have Mercy on the Working Man. Here we have Bobby, not Johnny, grinding out night after night on street corners and in lightly attended bars, unable to keep up with that debt that we suspected he might have been dragging his family into, getting billed while he was being killed and not necessarily seeing any progress toward his goals. 
Now, it works out for Bobby, and I'm going to be somebody. Boy, Travis Tritt had some long song titles, didn't he? <laughs> here's, here's a quarter. Call someone who cares, Milton. Get on with it. It works out for Bobby, and I'm going to be somebody, but I'm not sure I see a glimmer of hope in Lord Have Mercy on the Working Man. Where is the protagonist's break going to come from? For that matter, where exactly is the oppression coming from? Let's talk about that. This song seems to keep it vague, maybe intentionally so. And I think I can fairly say not completely consistent. You hear it in the classic line I alluded to a moment ago. It's a great line. They're billing me for killing me. It's like there's no way to win here because I'm catching it on both ends. But who is they? Who is billing and killing the singer? Where is this crippling oppression coming from? Let's name them. The blame in the first verse is conceptual, not personal. They are poverty and temptation. Poverty sounds more like the symptom than the cause, but maybe a little of both. And I'm guessing temptation is an indirect reference to the media. Not that that's much more specific, but extravagance on television contributing to cultural pressure to keep up with the Joneses, that type of thing. Temptation to funnel even more of that money he's working hard for to the dancing rich men, not women, I guess, in the song. The second verse mentions two more sources of oppression, taxes. And the video is pretty provocative here. I'm not sure there's anything like this specific of a hint in the song, but in the video, when Travis Tritt sings about Uncle Sam helping himself to the money in his pocket whenever it happens to be needed, things like tanks and fighter planes move by on the screen. Turns out, country music isn't as politically one-note as we might have suspected, or maybe as it may have become. 1992 was certainly a different time. Try to imagine this song on country radio today. And by the way, greetings from the past, if you're listening to this in a future where my comments here don't make any sense. But right now, I can't imagine anything like this on the radio, either in terms of its musical style or its political point of view. But apparently, you could do a lighthearted political song on country radio in 1992 and get away with it. Not just get away with it, have a number five hit with it. Lighten up, folks. The other target in the second verse are politicians, that they are corrupt liars who only are after the protagonist's money. It's like, no way, Costas, where do you get that idea? I did chuckle at the pretty transparent word substitution Tritt used when saying that politicians treat him like a mushroom by feeding him bull. Something tells me that wasn't Costas's original word choice. <laughs> the third verse is interesting because, a la God bless Texas, it turns explicitly divine, but it still feels a bit tongue-in-cheek as the singer essentially prays to St. Peter and then to God himself to appeal for help against the vast and powerful quicksand of an economic dilemma he can't see a way out of. This does contrast with, I'm going to be somebody, I'm going to be somebody. Bobby succeeded by his own hard work. We mentioned in that episode, there seemed to be some divine push there, but one could hardly give God credit for where Bobby ended up. In terms of the song, Bobby seems to take that credit himself. Here, it seems the opposite. Here, it seems that the singer has tried everything else, uh, looked to politics, looked to hard work, and r- really has found no solution, is essentially turning to God as a last resort to get out of what the singer simply describes as a trap. And apparently, the prayer was answered because Travis Tritt seems to have gotten out of any economic trap he was in. 
Travis Trick got out, and so shall we. To that end, let's recap. We talked about three key features of this song. The first is that the song is a bit of a novelty song. It has an old-timey instrumental feel that seems to be on purpose. All that seems to be deliberate to make this song feel lighthearted and stand in contrast to a fairly heavy message it actually has, maybe even a depressing message. The second key feature we mentioned is that this song is a party song. It sounds like it's in a crowded bar full of a sympathetic crowd who is singing along. And if that helps keep the song, again, fun, less like lament, and more like commiseration. Finally, I'm just going to say it, and I did say it, the song is doing some socioeconomic class pandering. And in an election year, I suppose the more things change, the more they stay the same. But there's a lot of interesting things going on here about the political point of view and what it sounded like in 1992. It feels different than today. It feels lighter and less divisive than it does today. And part of that is what I think makes the song still work to a degree, even if I might argue this one doesn't completely work like some of the others did. Okay, folks, it's time for my personal favorite part of each episode. It's time to find out what we'll be covering on our next episode of Nashville Anthems. I won't lie, I'm kind of crossing my fingers for something from the 80s, but let's see what happens. I'm going to pull up Satellite Radio's 80s and 90s country station right now and see what's playing. We have Kenny Chesney, How Forever Feels. I look forward to talking with you about that song in two weeks. Until then, you can email me at meltonmcmainerberry at gmail.com. You can also follow Nashville Anthems on both Instagram and Facebook. And don't forget to tell a friend about us. Thanks for listening. See you next time. I gotta go. I still haven't done my taxes.